the hard shoulder on News Talk with the all new Nissan Juke, the coupe crossover by Nissan. Nissan, innovation that excites. Every Wednesday at this time on this show, we bring you the last post, or rather, John Kelleher does. He tells us about the life of someone who has recently passed away, someone we probably never heard of, someone we probably should have heard of. And, John, this week, you're telling me about Charles Hill. Who was Charles Hill? A very interesting uh, chap with an Irish uh, connection. Um, he he was uh, a an, he could have been an art dealer or a gallery owner. He was he was from that world in that world. But he actually joined the Metropolitan Police in London and became uh, a leading player in Scotland Yard's elite, what was called Art Squad. He recovered uh, stolen art masterpieces from all over the world and. He involved sometimes in very quite daring undercover operations. Oh wow! Okay, so this is a, a an art detective we're talking about then, Charles. An art detective, yeah. Charles Hill, Charlie Hill. Uh, tell me about his early life and his background. Yeah, he liked to be called Charlie. By the way, you're, you're right there. And um, he was born. He was half British and half American. He was born in Cambridge in 1947. His mother was a, a dancer. She was British, and she met his father, who was a U.S. Uh, Air Force uh, officer in the, during the Second World War. Um, his father, incidentally, was one of the very first people into the concentration camp at Dachau after it was liberated. Um, but Charlie went to school in Washington, D.C., and his mother took him to art galleries and museums, and he became very interested mm. in, in art. But strangely enough, he dropped out of college. Um, he was in Connecticut in, in university, but in 1967 to join the army, the American army, um, in a, what he described as a burst of idealism. Um, and he was a paratrooper during the Vietnam War. Wow. But he, he was there for, I think, a couple of years, but he returned home unsettled, very unsettled by the violence and by the war. And most of his platoon had been wiped out. Um, so he, he turned uh, to um, art, to art galleries, to symphony orchestras. And he was he was very much uh, influenced by the Kenneth Clark series, which at the time was very highly acclaimed. It was a 13 part series called Civilization. And um, after his death last week, his daughter actually said that the series had a, a profound effect on him after the, the jungles of, of Vietnam and the horrors of war. OK, tell me about his Irish connection you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, he came to Ireland in the early 1970s to Trinity, to Trinity College on a Fulbright scholarship. Uh, I think he was here for a year. Then he went to Belfast and he was he taught maths at a school in, in Belfast before going on to study theology in uh, at King's College in London with a view to becoming an Anglican clergyman. And then in the late 70s, in 79, he um, married Caroline Stewart, who's a, a niece of Louis Le Brocchi. Oh, wow. OK, so a couple of Irish yeah. uh, connections yeah. uh, in there. How then did he go uh, from all of this from... Uh, thinking he was going to become a clergyman or a maths teacher to the London Metropolitan Police? Well, I don't know what actually uh, motivated him, but I know that in the late 70s, he joined the Metropolitan Police and he, he showed a clear aptitude for detective work. 
And it wasn't long before they assigned him to what was called the uh, Art and Antiques Unit. And uh, that was known as the Art Squad. So he, he got straight into it. And there's there's um, one undercover assignment that he did very early on. He engaged with these two um, veteran London criminals, uh, old school criminals who'd stolen this 16th century um, artwork, which they believed to be a masterpiece, to be extremely valuable. And he posed as an art dealer. They had no idea he was a cop. Uh, he uh, he met them and he told them that it was a forgery, that at best it was worth just a couple of grand. Uh, they were a bit taken aback, but Charlie kept them talking, apparently over a, a great deal of cognac, um, brandy, <laughs> cognac as he called it, until the Scotland Yard flying squad arrived. Um, and he, he was actually quite gratified because his estimate of the painting's value uh, was corroborated by uh, an art, uh, an auction house. Um, they said, and they said it was a forgery. It was actually a forgery of a 16th century Italian work. And he he declared, he said, from that point on, I was a made man. Wow. Okay. Like <laughs> when he was working then with the with the Met, I mean, you know, he had this interesting background, spending his time in galleries. He's married to a niece of Louis Le Broca. I'm looking at a picture of him here. Dare I say it? He doesn't look like. Your average PC plod? <laughs> I totally agree with you. All due respect he, to he, uh, he cut a, a pretty striking figure, I think, at the yard. Uh, he would have. He would have stood. Uh, he would have stood out. Uh, he wore. He wore um, tortoiseshell glasses, and he his conversation was kind of constantly about you know medieval history or Oscar Wilde, and he was he was um, he sported a bow tie, and he often. Um, when he was disguising himself, which he was very good at, he he took on this role of being a dodgy kind of art dealer with a mid-Atlantic accent. And he, he had a choice of different uh, costumes that he'd wear, like he had a, a seersucker suit and tasseled loafers. But apparently his favourite um, was uh, a Donegal tweed jacket. <laughs> and somebody somebody described him, I think a journalist uh, uh, described him as being a cross between uh, a knight of the round table and uh, Philip Marlowe, the, the famous Raymond Chandler. <laughs> I see. Yeah. And, and I, I understand he, he crossed swords or figuratively crossed swords with Martin Kahl. Yeah, more Irish connection here. In fact, in 1993, he was instrumental in recovering the um, the Vermeer, the famous Vermeer masterpiece uh, called Lady Writing a Letter with Her Maid. And that was one of the 18 paintings that had been stolen from uh, Rusborough House from Sir Alfred and Lady Bite in 1986 by a gang led by Martin Cahill, the general. So uh, he, Charlie posed as a, a middleman for a, a kind of a Middle Eastern tycoon. And he arranged to meet this particular gangster, who I don't think was Irish, who had come into possession of four of the, the paintings and had contacted him. And they met in this parking garage at Antwerp Airport. And the gangster took Goya's uh, portrait of Donna Antonia Zarate from a sports bag in the boot of the car and unrolled it like a, po a poster. Oh, God. And Charlie said there were three other paintings in the boot, uh, including the Vermeer, which was in a plastic rubbish sack, you know, a black plastic oh, sack. God. Uh, 
minutes later, the uh, Belgian police arrived. All right, so that was the end of it. But sorry, but there was only three, four altogether. There were there was other paintings missing then, wasn't there? Eighteen yeah, there were, were stolen. Yeah, missing. I think there were two uh, still unrecovered. And Are there? Uh, Charlie vowed to Lady Bite that he would continue to search for those two. He he suspected, strongly suspected, that they were hanging in the home of a, a perfectly innocent buyer in in Florida. And as recently as last year, he actually told the Irish Daily Mail, he said, I'm confident that the owner of these very beautiful paintings will eventually realise their origins and return them to the Irish people. So one of the most famous art heists in history, in recent history, uh, was when the scream was stolen from Oslo. Oh, uh, he played yeah. a part in all of yeah, that, 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 did was- he? He had a big role in in recovering it. Um, the that was in in February 1994. Thieves uh, got away with uh, they they stole the scream by Edvard Munch uh, in Oslo in 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 the National Gallery of Norway. I mean, it's an iconic painting. You know, I think everybody, if they saw it, you'd recognise it immediately. The figure with the head clasped in its hands and the mouth is open in a cry of horror. It's become a kind of a symbol of of uh, the individual trying to cope with the the stresses and the pressures of of life um pretty pretty uh, likely to have been used and seen by many in current times but anyway that the um the thieves had timed the heist to coincide with the opening day of the winter olympics uh, the very same day which was being hosted by norway and they left a note behind that said thanks for the poor security but they got away and the Norwegian police then immediately sought or soon sought the help of the Scotland Yard art squad. So Charlie was soon on the case and he purported to be a an art dealer called Chris Roberts. And there was a really quite a daring undercover sting operation involved. And we actually have a, a clip of Charlie speaking to the BBC, telling some of the story in his own words. Take a listen. The character I came up with, um, Chris Roberts, was a a uh, slightly dodgy, mid-Atlantic accented art dealer who was doing some buying for the Getty Museum in Europe. So I had a minder um, who we portrayed as an English gangster living in Amsterdam. What we did in this particular case was to go from a person who knew someone who knew someone else and just followed that chain until we eventually got to the people who controlled the painting. When I finally met the bad guys, I had to convince them that the Getty Museum would uh, pay to recover the painting. Yeah, that was Charlie uh, speaking to the BBC at the time. Uh, ultimately, he, he, how, how, how did this resolve itself? Did he, did he meet the bad guys like he had with Vermeer or what happened next? Yeah, he did. He did. Uh, posing as, as uh, Chris Roberts, he agreed a price with the bad guys uh, of half a million uh, quid sterling and he then drove uh, with the bad guys to a summer house about 50 kilometers from Oslo uh, where they discovered this or they showed him the scream which was hidden in the basement and as soon as they unwrapped it from the sheet he knew immediately that it was the the scream he, he said uh, uh, later he said a masterpiece will tell you itself that it's genuine it just jumps out at you uh, and he also said that when he saw it, he, he just said, holy mackerel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what happened next? Did, did he have to buy it back? Did they get away? What well, happened? 
Uh, a few days later, the four men were arrested ah. by the Norwegian police and they were convicted of stealing the the scream. But three of them got off uh, by, at the, on appeal. Um, the appeals court ruled that Charlie's testimony was not admissible, was inadmissible because he'd used a false identity, which is interesting. Oh, interesting. Uh, so did he stay in the Met then until what, the ripe old age of 65, I guess the normal age of retirement or what did he do? No, he left a bit earlier than that. He retired uh, when he was 50 oh. uh, in 1996. But he, he worked for first for an insurance company and then later as a private detective. But he stayed in the same world. He, it was um, looking for artworks to restore to their their rightful owners. Yeah, um, and, and nothing as famous as The Scream since. But it, was he involved in anything noteworthy as a private detective? He was, yeah. Uh, about 18 years ago, um, uh, he was involved in recovering a famous uh, Titian masterpiece called The Rest on the Flight into Egypt, which had been stolen from the stately home, Longley's house, the stately home of the Marcus of Bath. And apparently Charlie mentioned uh, on radio, he was being interviewed on the radio in relation to it, and he mentioned a figure of 150,000 as a reward for getting it back. And um, he got a phone call from a, from a man as a result of that radio interview. And after some negotiation, they wired money, the money to the man who told Charlie that he'd find the painting at a, at a bus stop outside a suburban rail station in London. And uh, it was all kind of very cloak and daggery. And the, the manager of, of Longleat House said that he said afterwards he felt that Charlie was likely to end up in a he thought he might end up in a sack in the Thames with a knife in his back. But Charlie went to the bus stop, the designated bus stop, and he he found the Titian there uh, at the bus stop in a plain brown wrapper next to an old man uh, who may or may not apparently have had something to do with this. Charlie didn't ask the man. I see. <laughs> He just took the, um, the, the, the the wrapper and the painting that was in it. And the, the Marcus of Bath said that he was extremely pleased to get the, the painting back, even though Titian wasn't his favourite artist. <laughs> All right, OK. Well, I guess if you're the Marcus of Bath, you can afford to have a painting like that and it not be your favourite painting in the house. What did he think of all these thieves? Had he any kind of grudging respect for their heists? He didn't really. He he actually said that he had quite a low opinion of them. Um, he saw, he personally saw art theft as what he described as a strike against humanity's collective heritage, and he he described this, the the guys the uh, the bad guys who stole the scream as uh, a bunch of Oslo no hopers, and he he kind of said thieves who aren't art lovers, make a small amount of money in relation to the value of the picture. And then it moves around various hands in the criminal network. All right. OK, a, 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 a low opinion then. Uh, a low opinion. But uh, he loved what themes. he did. He, he did. He? What, oh, yeah. I mean, he he his um, I think he, he said that he I have held, he said, a Goya, a monk and a Vermeer in my hands that I personally helped to recover. There's nothing else I want to do. Wow. Yeah, that's a nice way to describe uh, your life's work. Uh, the life on times of Charlie Hill, uh, Charles Hill, the art squad copper who has passed away. Uh, John, thanks a million for all of that. 